Good morning to you all. If you would, open your Bibles to James chapter 1. We'll be in James 1, verses 12 through 25. I am very thankful and honored to be here. Uh, it's a privilege to open up God's Word. Uh, to be said that I am the least boring, it's only because I write in my notes, weak point, yell here. So it just works out in the end. Um, thankful to be here. I already heard the first of water bottles to fall over, and I'm kind of just excited for that throughout. So uh, it'll be the trial of mine throughout this sermon. James 1, verses 12 to 25. I've titled this sermon, The Tried and the True. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every Good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This you know, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. Let's pray for our time together in the word. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for the privilege that it is to have your word before us. Uh, May you write it on our hearts. May you use it that we might become more like our Savior. We thank you for its truth. We thank you for the privilege that it is to open up your word and be taught by it. Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to ask you a question this morning. Is this What does it mean to be blessed? On second thought, how do we know those who are blessed? The conception of what blessed means and who the blessed are has become largely trivialized in our day and age. In fact, this is a word that almost went into non-existence since the 1800s and has only recently been found as a common part of English language. That the last decade or so has been a season in which this word has risen up again in our common vernacular. And yet the use of the word blessed today is so improper and trite that even the world further questions our understanding of it. Jessica Bennett, a writer for the New York Times, wrote an article 
called They Feel Blessed. She says, here are a few ways that God has touched my social network over the past few months. God helped my friend get accepted into grad school. She was, quote, blessed to be there. God made it possible for a yoga instructor's Caribbean spa retreat. Quote, blessed to be teaching in paradise. God helped a new mom outfit her infant in a tiny designer suit. Quote, a year of patiently waiting, and it finally fits. Feeling, hashtag blessed. I love this one. God graced a colleague with at least 57 Facebook birthday wall posts. Quote, so blessed for all the love, unquote, to approximately 900 of her closest friends. She comments, the word is so overused it carries no meaning. Example, strawberries are half price at Trader Joe's. I feel so blessed. Her conclusion in all of this, there's nothing quite like invoking holiness as a way to brag about your life. The calling something, quote, blessed has become the go-to term for those who want to boast about an accomplishment while pretending to be humble. Fish for a compliment, acknowledge a success, or purposely elicit envy. I think this author caught on to something. Though there is a rightly perceived sense in which blessing and being blessed denotes having favor or fortune or happiness, man attributes these things to not to the source of happiness, but to the things that bring that happiness. For many, even believers, blessing is bound to selfishness or ease of life or comfort or success or affluence or lack of need. Instead, James teaches us something altogether different than that. James wants us to see that blessing and that being blessed often comes from affliction, not affluence. It often comes through struggle, not success. It often comes through lack and not luxury. James is showing us that trials are a primary means by which God yields and gives favor and fortune toward his people. It seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? And none of us wishes to face trials. The trials aren't something that each and every one of us goes out today and say, yeah, I'll look for that. And yet it's in the midst of that that James tells us that we can find blessing and that we can know that we are blessed. It's hard enough to face trials, let alone to believe that in them you will be blessed. And yet this is exactly what James tells us here in James chapter 1. As believers, we must be ready to endure trials and endure through this difficult life. Belief in Jesus doesn't rid us of pain and suffering and turmoil. Christian marriages are still difficult. Relationships can still be complicated and riddled with conflict. Our children can still die young. Loved ones die all the time and it still hurts. Money runs short. Sometimes we don't get the job. Our bodies fail us. People can fail us. We fail our classes. Trials are just a natural part of being human. And just attaching Jesus and having Jesus as your everything won't rid you of that in this life. It is something that we'll be rid of in the life to come. But even in the here and now, we must grapple with the reality that trials will come. I think you see that in James 1 
2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when, not if, when you meet trials of various kinds. The trials will come. Affliction and difficulty is inescapable. It often abounds and looks to throw us off course as men and women of faith. Nevertheless, there is much good for us in a trial-ridden life. Your philosopher of the week, Spurgeon, said it this way. There is no university for a Christian like that of sorrow and trials. We would do well to pay attention to these words because even if you're not going through a trial now, you will go through a trial sooner or later. And how will you endure it? How will you face it? How will you know in the midst of difficulty that you are still loved, that you are still favored, that you are still blessed? That's what James looks to tease out in this passage. And we want to see four marks of an enduring Christian in this text so that you might be assured of the blessing that you have in Jesus Christ. Four marks that will continue to remind you that you are loved and protected and cared for by a good father. And so we'll see this in these four ways. One, the Christian who endures trials refuses to blame God for temptation in verses 13 to 16. Secondly, he reveres the goodness of God, verses 17 and 18. Third, he receives the word of God, verses 19 through 21. And fourth, he responds to the word with obedience, verses 22 to 25. We start with point one. A blessed man, the one who knows that there is a crown of life to come, as it says in verse 12, who's enduring trials, being steadfast in them, who knows that God has promised this to those who love him. This secure person, firstly, refuses to blame God for temptation. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now it is true, and we must Make clear that God will allow trials in your life. God will allow affliction to come into your life, and he will even allow temptations to arise in your life. Jesus himself in Matthew 4 was tempted. God in his sovereignty allows that. But God does not produce that for you. God does not desire for you to succumb to that. That's what James wants us to see in the outset of this argument, verse 13. Trials often are the soil by which temptations flourish. It's when you're in times of difficulty that you often desire to grapple and strive and work your way, even if it means succumbing to sin, to get out of them. For example, the thief is not in sin because he lacks, but because he wishes to take wrongfully. The trial is to be in need. The temptation is to get what you need improperly. That is what a temptation is. It is responding or being enticed to improperly behave. And when we're in those moments and when we face serious trials in our life, we must never point to God as the source for our inclination towards sin. 
That God desires for us in moments of trials to draw closer to him, not away from him. And when we succumb to temptation, it is not of God, it is completely of ourselves. And the argument is firstly that when we face trials and when we succumb to temptation, we know it's not of God because this is not who God is. To believe so is firstly to wrongly understand God. And the argument is we cannot say we are being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. And so firstly, you understand that God has no palate for evil. He has no taste for it. He has no inclination for it. And if he has no inclination for it, he has no desire for that for you. Psalm 5.4, for you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells in you. There is no evil in God that he can conjure up, nor that he would desire for you to partake in. And so we do not blame God because we know that he is not himself allured by evil. And secondly, he tempts no one. That which he does not desire, he doesn't desire for you. In fact, when you face temptation, God does everything and has provided every means necessary for you to escape that temptation. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God is not at fault for your succumbing to sin. God is not at fault when you face trials and desire to get out of them by your own means without him. That is not God's doing. It is not in his nature. It is not in his character. And James wishes to make that very clear before you turn and point the finger at God for facing hardship and succumbing to evil ways of dealing with that. When you sin, you have no one to turn to, no one to blame but yourself. I come from a Pentecostal background. I know what it's like when you're going through temptation to say, the devil did it. The the devil made me do it. But that's actually not the argument James uses here. You can't blame God because each person, verse 14, is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. When you succumb to temptation, it is you succumbing to that which is already in you. And I'm not saying the devil never tempts you or never entices you. We know that he prowls like a lion seeking those with whom, to whom he's going to devour. And yet the point James is making here is that you can be your own worst enemy in the midst of trials. Each person tempted when he is allured and enticed by his own desire. The illustration here is one of hunting or fishing. It's setting out a trap to catch game or setting out the net or the, the hook and the bait in order to lure in fish. You set something out that might seem attractive. In the, in the trap, you might place food or on, on the hook, you play, place a shiny bait. And you entice the game to come in. Just like that, your desires entice you. It isn't God who tempts you. It's already in you. And when you bite that bait, Look at the downward spiral in 15. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Friends, I think there's something to be said here, not only about not 
blaming God for temptation and refusing sin, but the fact that sin and those weights of encumbrance that come from temptation look to rob you of the assurance that you have, the blessed estate that you have in Jesus Christ, the blessed man who seeks this crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When you're in sin and when you succumb to temptation, that is not of God, that is of you, and that only leads when it is fully grown, to death. Blessedness leads to life. Sin leads to death. And so if that's you, if you're in a place where you've been tried and tested and all you can think of is to continue to give in and to cave in and to let go of God and to continue to live in life of sin, don't be confused that you have no assurance in your faith. Sin only breeds death. It only gives a guilty verdict. And those chosen and loved by God are chosen toward life. When faced with trials and even the temptations that can come from them, with whom do you choose to dwell? Do you dwell with God in the struggle? Or do you strive to work your way out of affliction? Do you do everything that is possible within your own means to get out of trials and affliction? Or do you trust in God and to give yourself wholly to him in all that you do? Are you hasty to escape trials by your own means, by any means necessary, even if it meant giving up holiness, even if it meant giving up on God, even if it meant being lax with what God has commanded of you and prescribed for you? Again, your philosopher says it this way, better to be taught by suffering than to be taught by sin. Better to lie in God's dungeon than to revel in in the devil's palace. I think the point here is that we ought to always strive for holiness even when it doesn't seem easy to do so. Even when it seems easy to figure it out on our own. That isn't the answer. In fact, the answer is altogether different. James says the answer is to look at God. The answer is to confide in God. The answer is to trust in God. And the reason we can do that is because God's character and God's goodness is so clearly evident in in who he is. The essence of his nature is goodness. And so the Christian refuses to blame God for temptation and to succumb to sin And instead, secondly, reveres the goodness and integrity of God. Verse 16 says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Don't give in to this wrong view of God and of yourself. But instead, look at this. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And no evil can come from God because there is only good in him. No evil can come from God because from the heavens, only good gifts and perfect gifts have ever come down. That is what descends from heaven. And the true believer reveres the blessed truth that God is good. We have an illustration of that for us in the Old Testament, do we not? If we looked at the life of Joseph, a man who was sold by his own brothers, 
a man who was a slave, a man who was wrongly accused of a crime he did not commit, a man who was imprisoned and then forgotten in that prison by folks who said they would vouch for him outside of prison, eventually makes it out and in the end can say, though it was meant for evil, God meant it for good. Uh, That's a man who understood God's character. That's a man who understood God's holiness. That's a man who understood God's goodness and that God is good no matter what is going on around you. No matter what is going on in life, God's goodness can never be questioned because every good and perfect gift comes down from above. And coming down here in verse 17, it also declares it as coming down from the Father of lights. And so I think the illustration is not only Joseph, but I think this is actually pointing us back even further from that to creation itself. That's who it's pointing at as the God of goodness, is the God who created all things and made all things and is the father of lights, the luminaries, the sun, the moon, the stars. That God who day after day created created, created, and it was good and good and good, and by the end, it was very good. That's the God we worship. We worship a God who is only good. And he is so unlike that which he even made. God is not like his creation. He is creator, and so he transcends that. And he is the one who is the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. It's a play on words here that James is using to highlight how God transcends even those great lights. That unlike those lights that God created that brighten and dim and rise and set, God is not like that. His goodness never goes away. There is no new moon when which his goodness disappears. There is no cloud by which it cannot be located. There is no eclipse by which it can be darkened. God's goodness is on display always. It can never be thwarted. Nothing can hide it. It's pervasive. It's unending. It's perpetual. And it will last till the end of the age and beyond that. That is God's goodness. There is no variation in it. He doesn't change who he is. The sun may rise and set, but God's goodness is forever. Oh, brothers, that you would taste and see that the Lord is good. You know that verse. Hope you know also how it ends. Because blessed is the man who trusts in him. The goodness of God is something that we ought to hold on to. Because it will be our anchor when we face the trials and afflictions of this life. When you're tested and you're beat down and you're looking for a way to get back up, the one thing that you're going to be able to hold on to is that God is good. That he has never changed from that position. That he has never changed from that essential trait of his character. And we of all people know that best because we have the gospel of Jesus. That is verse 18. That this God who never changes is always good. Well, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. 
That word of truth is elsewhere highlighted and used as the gospel of salvation. We know God is good because his goodness transcends and is above and beyond anything he's ever made. He is creator. He is benevolent. And we know that best because we have been brought forth by the word of truth. We have been brought forth by the very testimony of God, which declares that sinners have hope, that sinners can be loved, and that they have been loved. And while we were yet dead, God came to die for the ungodly. Friends, when you are faced with affliction, do not cheapen the beauty that is the gospel. It's not meant to minimize your problems. It's not meant to diminish the reality that you're going through something that's important to you. God doesn't need to fix your problems. He's fixed your biggest problem. Your biggest issue is that you weren't right with him and he made you right with him by his own volition. Whereas your desires were going to lead to sin that when fully grown would have brought forth death, God of his own will brought you forth by the gospel of Jesus. And when you're faced with affliction, there is no better place to turn to than Jesus. His yoke is light. His burden is easy. Cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. And when you do that, you will bear the marks of a true Christian. You will bear the marks of this blessed man who hopes for the day when the crown of life, that crown that is life, everlasting life, is given to you by the God who's promised that for those who love him. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The point here is that as you make this argument and as you tease out what it looks like to be this blessed man who endures trials, one who is refusing to blame God for the things happening in his life or her life, and you hold on to the goodness of God preeminently in the gospel of his son who came to save sinners, that there would be fruit in your life that backs that up, that there would be evidence of that. And that leads us into this third point, that we would be those who receive the word of God. I know in your translation it might say, know this, my beloved brothers, but the verb there is actually, I think, indicative. It's this you know, and it's looking back that as you know that you are one who is born of the word of truth, that you have been born from the gospel, that you've been born again, now that you know this, this is how you respond to that word of truth. I don't think what we're going to see here, although we've heard it often this way, is a horizontal concept. I think it's a vertical concept. Because what we're grappling in this, with in this text is the word of God. We see it over and over. Verse 18, the word of truth. Verse 21, the implanted word. Verse 22, the word. Verse 25, it changes over to the law of liberty. And so as you know that you are someone that is born of the word of truth, know this, that to that word you ought to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The concept here is one of how you receive God's word in the midst of trials. 
how you understand and how you are attentive and how you're careful to listen to God's wisdom as opposed to the world's wisdom or your own wisdom. James is focused upon your desire to follow God in the midst of trials. But quick to hear is to be careful and attentive, to be someone who listens without distraction. It's someone who makes sure that when they're engaging in a conversation with someone, they're not distracted by social media or by a friend or by the Sixers being beat by the Celtics. It's, it's that you give yourself to full attention, being slow to speak, that you're not bringing your own thoughts into the word, but that you would want to extract from the word of God everything that it has for you because you can't fix your problems. But God can lead and guide and show you the way through your trials. And slow to anger that when God says something, it wouldn't make your blood boil that it's not what you want. That when God says to wait and you just want to do, that you would wait. That when God says to give up on that sin, that you would give up on that sin and not argue with him about it. Your anger hasn't produced an ounce of righteousness in your life, is what James is saying. The righteousness that God requires of you, this this life of righteousness, the righteous life that God desires, is one that only comes from receiving the word. That's why in verse 21 he says, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. When it comes down to disagreement between you and God, there's only one of you that's right. And it's never you. It is only God. And therefore, you do everything that you can to get rid of the obstacles and the hindrances that would allow God's word to take root in your heart. If you want to be steadfast in trials, you need more of his word. You don't need more psychology and you don't need more therapy and you don't need more conversations with other people. You first and foremost need God. Not because those things are bad, but because God is the ultimate source and anchor for afflictions. Those other things can help. Uh, Reading helpful articles is good. Talking to your friend is good. But first and foremost, friends, you need to go to God. And he can be found in his word. And when you go there, when you've been born of his word of truth, when you've believed in the gospel, you do everything you can to rid yourself of those things that would distract you from letting God's word take root in your heart. Putting away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Filthiness is this concept of a barrier. In fact, it's actually talking about earwax. And I was thinking about how do I just bring that up in a sermon, but there's no way. But the point is, it's hard to hear when your ear is kind of full of junk, right? You need to clear that out in order to hear someone first. Wickedness or moral evil, corruption, hidden sins even. These are the things that obstruct us. Whether it be weights or sins, we remove those things that we might receive God's word. In trials, when it's so easy to fill our minds 
with other thoughts and other methods and all our strivings and try to fix our lives and put them together and, and, and go for different strategies and quick fixes. Instead, what James says is we need to rely upon God's word, that the trials of life necessitate that we be a word-filled people, that it is only a word-saturated Christian that will endure this trial-saturated life, that we must draw near incessantly to the word of God to draw from that well that never runs dry. Your friends cannot save you from your problems. You cannot save yourself from your problems. God's word lasts forever, and it will bring you to the end. It says here it's able to save your souls. The implication is not simply that it's the gospel that saves, but it's the gospel that saves to completion. It saved you. It is saving you now, and one day will ultimately save you in glorification. As your own MacArthur says, it is the divine power behind the truth of Scripture that is able to initiate salvation, keep it alive and growing, and finally bring it to final glory, perfect and complete. You won't make it to the end by giving up on God. You won't make it to the end by blaming God for your problems. You'll make it to the end by giving yourself to his word, to its comfort, to its exhortation, to its truth, to the things that hurt and to the things that bring you joy, to all of the word that will bring you to the end. But... It's not simply that you would receive the word. It is also that you would respond to it. It is not enough to go to chapel three times a week and go to your church twice a week and to go to your Bible study and to go to Abner Chow's class and to have your own personal devotion. It's that in all of that, you would do something with the word that's being placed in you. That you would truly respond to what God is working in your heart. Why? Because the person who does all of that and never acts on it, never reacts to it, never responds to it, is liable to deceive themselves. You might think you're a Christian simply because you're sitting here. And I want you to fully and well know that does not buy your Christianity. Your, your, your status as a blessed man, as a Christian, is fully bought by Christ and your allegiance to him. And your faith in him is borne out by your working what he's working in you. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Deceiving yourself. So fourthly, we, we see here that the Christian responds to the word with obedience. The reason we respond is because it is natural to the Christian who has affections for Christ, the Christian who has affections for the gospel, the Christian who has, whose heart has been changed, that the heart of stone has been pulled out and a heart of flesh has been given to receive God's word in whom God's word is taking root, that life will be bearing much fruit. It makes no sense for your life to be otherwise. That's the illustration he gives in verse 23. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, not a doer. He is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets that he was what he was like. I don't, I don't think that what he's pointing at here is that this guy made a quick glance and then walked away and just didn't know what he looked like that morning. 
I think the point is that the guy looked in the mirror. He did the whole tie thing, you know. Said, you look good, all right. Everything's in check. My hair, Norman gave me the cut of my lifetime. I mean, I'm feeling, I'm good. I look great. That was for you. And after having seen and examined yourself, you go away and forget. The point is, that makes no sense. How could you possibly forget what you were just intently focused on, carefully examining? That is ridiculous. And so too, it is ridiculous to examine and to let the word of God and to say that the word of God is taking root in your life and to not be bearing anything. To say that you love God and that you love his word and that you read his word and that you dive into his word and that you care for his word and to go living life. As though that's not true. That is absolutely ridiculous. That makes no sense. May it never be said of us that our minds are so filled with Christ and yet our hearts have no place for his word. Trials will bear that out. Trials will press you till you can't be pressed anymore and leave you empty. And you need to fill that up with something. And if the word is not in there, everyone will know. And even if everyone does not know, God will know. You cannot fool him. We instead look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. This law of liberty, the law that frees us, what is that? Well, it's not necessarily the Old Testament law. I think it's the fulfillment of it in Jesus. It is the law of Christ, and that law of Christ is the law of love, that the reason that you have an assurance that you will be capable of actually living out what God is placing in your heart with his word is because you love him. Going directly back to verse 12. That those who ultimately will be blessed are those who God has promised eternal life to as the ones that love him. That this law of liberty is one in which God, through his son, abides in you. And you now, too, abide in him. It is the freeing love of the gospel that you love because you were first loved. That because God condescended, you know that one day you will ascend to be with him. And so your obedience and your allegiance to the word is fostered by a love for him. You can't help but obey. The Christian life is not one in which you obey because you have to. It's you obey because you desire to. You, you love your master. You, you love that he is a good savior. You love that he is a good shepherd. You love that he is the sacrificial lamb. You love what he's done for you. And you love the anchor that he is to your soul. So you would do anything for that Savior. You would obey even out of love. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way, love is not just a sentiment, love is a great controlling passion. And it is always expressed, it always expresses itself in terms of obedience. Augustine says, wicked men obey from fear, good men from love. And so friends, every step of obedience reminds us that we love him. And that is why he ends by saying, this man 
will be blessed in his doing. Because when you obey and that obedience is tethered to love, you have that assurance. You have that assurance that God loves you, that God favors you, that God is for you, that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. You have that assurance that you can remain steadfast and you will receive the crown of life that he has promised. Our obedience doesn't make us right with him. Our progress assures us of our position is what James is telling us. In his book, in his book Assured, Greg Gilbert says this, many Christians would be surprised to realize that when the Bible talks about the relationship between our good works and assurance, the purpose is almost always to settle believers' hearts and consciences, to confirm them and to comfort them. And so your obedience, your response to the word of God is not meant to aggravate you even further, to give you that much more to do when you already are living in a trial-ridden life. It's so that you, even in the face of trials, are not excused from obedience, but instead you're drawn to it because of love. And in that obedience, you find comfort because you know what God has done in you and you know that your love for him is genuine. What greater confidence when all seems lost than to know that your soul abides in the God of life and to treasure that all things truly work for good for those who love him. Friends, trials will come. Many, for many of you, trials are here now. How will you know you are blessed? Stay fast, steadfast to the word of God and to his son. He has loved you so that you can love him much. He has forgiven you so that you might know that the crown of life is yours. He's promised it to you. Your response must be marked by love. And when you do that, when you respond to God with love, blessed assurance is yours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity in your word. We thank you that though we fall short and though we fail, and though life is difficult and trials do come, we do have a blessed assurance that Christ has regarded our helpless estate and has given his own blood for our soul. God, when all seems lost, when we go, may we go back to the gospel. And may we go back to the person and work of Jesus, the one who gave himself for us and by whom his love frees us to give ourselves wholly to him. May we be found faithful, God, and in that have an assurance of our blessed position in the Savior. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name.